Next on the Well of Sound... Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Alice Cooper. Dead babies can take care of themselves. Welcome to my nightmare. I think you're gonna like it. I think you're gonna feel you belong. thinking about it on the way over what what my initial Alice Cooper exposure was I mean I'm probably for the same of a lot of I I'm guessing ours is almost the same for a lot Wayne's of people world. Are, of our yeah. generation guys it is Wayne's world I'd have to say Asphinter says what and so my initial impression of Alice Cooper was not only that he was sort of heavy metal right because that's the the he 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 plays I think feed my Frankenstein in the Frankenstein <laughs> does play feed my Frankenstein he plays feed my Frankenstein from 1991 yeah and then he has probably one of the funniest jokes in the entire movie is the sort of Milwaukee so do you come to Milwaukee often well I'm a regular visitor here but Milwaukee has certainly had its share of visitors. The French missionaries and explorers were coming here as early as the late 1600s to trade with the Native Americans. In fact, isn't Milwaukee an Indian name? Yes, Pete, it is. Actually, it's pronounced Miliwake, which is Algonquin for the good land. I was not aware of that. I think one of the most interesting aspects of Milwaukee is the fact that it's the only major American city to have ever elected three socialist mayors. Does this guy know how to party or what? So, so I saw Alice Cooper at a comic book convention. He did kind of a Q&A, which was fun to see because as you know, we're going to get into, I mean, he's he's quite the personality, quite the talker. He can spin a yarn. Um, but one person, there was an open mic for, for questions and, and one guy came up and, uh, and his, the first thing he said was, We're not worthy! We're not worthy! And I'm Alice sure, yeah. was like, it was like, if I had a nickel, for every time. <laughs> it, was, it was a formative moment. It was. It a was. formative moment. It was. It's so great. And he plays it so well with the kiss the ring uh, gesture that he does. Oh, I forgot about that part. He's such a ham in such a great way. So yeah, well, Wayne's World is the entryway for a lot of people. But I never, I didn't really go further than that for a long No, I think that that's, that's probably the most interesting thing about this story for me and the, and the journey that I've been on across like... Uh, 15 years of, of listening to Alice Cooper, I would say, um, is going from that point of seeing him as an, an old metal dude um, and really n- and, and, and corny um, in my middle school, high school mind, and then discovering that, you know, he, he paved the way for a lot of acts 
and uh, he evolves across the 70s oh, well, from the late 60s i mean yeah. um but we'll get into it it's I, I love that this story essentially starts at a high school called cortez high yeah in arizona in arizona i just Even love though alice that this, is originally from detroit clearly like detroit origins are a big deal for vincent fernier yes call me alice okay my mom doesn't call me alice but you can call me alice what does your mom call you my mom calls me um, about twice a week. Sends <laughs> me five dollars. What does she call you when she calls you? <laughs> no, she calls me Alice. She finally got used to it. She got into a point where she was in between my real name, Vince, Vincent, mm. and Alice's. So she was sort of going, Alice, <laughs> could you come over tonight? Who's going to send me five dollars? <laughs> but the real Alice Cooper story really kind of starts the out the story of the band starts with high school buddies. Yeah. Um, which is pretty cool. I don't know that we've totally touched on that, maybe with the Beach Boys a little bit, but but like sort of the high school buddy band, these guys are the sort of rock and roll dream come true. Like he and Dennis Dunaway, who's the bassist, yeah. and uh, they were both on the track team, the cross country team, I think. The extracurricular activities were, at that time, uh, I was a distance runner. That's all I did was I ran. I ran all the time. That's where I get my adrenaline now for stage, I think, is, is that. But also the band. That's all we did was we rehearsed every night for eight hours in the garage. And that was truly the only thing we ever did. We only had time for that. Any, any band, I think, worth their salt started in the garage. And Glenn Buxton, who ends up playing lead guitar, he also went to their high school. So those three are from the same high school. The other two, Michael Bruce... Come in a little later. ...and Neil Smith, they come in later. But yeah, it starts... And I, when I was reading Dunaway's book about Alice Cooper, it's called Snakes, Guillotines, and um, Electric Chairs. Great book, like by the is way, it? fantastic book. And you said that uh, his Dunaway's narration is great too. Dun- it's fan- it's fantastic. He's a clearly maybe not quite as much of a character as Alice, but played a huge role. They were they were the two guys in the back of the classroom who were into Dali and and just making fun. And in fact, they the re- way they got together as a band, yeah, was to do like a Beatles spoof group at a talent show at a fundraiser. And so those are two formative uh, elements right there. They love the Beatles mm-hmm. and Dali as far as, I mean, it, the band is is kind of living art for a, for a stretch there. And that's where, you know, they, I did not know, for example, when we were way back when, when we started talking about this, yeah. I didn't realize that Frank Zappa played such a big role. Right. And I actually don't know that much about Frank Zappa, except for this is the second group we've profiled outside, because Little Feet's the other one that, oh, start, yeah. that Zappa incubates. Right. But um, yeah, so they're, they're playing in high school, and none of them can really play anything, but they're having fun. And it's, it's clear that uh, Alice or Vincent at this point, um, he's got a big personality. Yeah. And he's magnetic. Yeah, and he reminds me a little bit of when we talked about Paul Williams, and everyone just seems to want to have this guy around. He's a, he's a guest on every single, you know, talk show. Clearly, Alice has that same effect on people. Yeah, and like it's it becomes a real issue later, but right early on, he was. It's the guy, enough to form a band. It's enough to form a band around. Yeah. Because he can, you know, they even talk is he, he came into his singing persona later, but he doesn't have what you would conventionally call a great voice. Nor are these guys musicians, really, except for Glenn Buxton, who is, is kind of the one who teaches them how to play some instruments, at, at, you know, at the get-go. 
and they have um, one. So this is what you were talking about. They do one sort of like talent show performance, and uh, it's enough to get um, them thinking like, "Hey, let's let's yeah. try this a little bit more." Like the, but we're talking 1964, right? We're not. Right. We're not. This is not that. Alice Cooper is such a 70s band in people's minds. I think. Yeah. Or early 70s band, but this is early 60s, right? Like, and um, I think the first. They form a band called, they originally called the Earwigs because they're trying to play on insect kind of things. We just went through a couple name changes. We were the Spiders, the Earwigs, <laughs> the Earwigs first, then Naz. the Spiders, the Naz, and then Alice Cooper. Which a couple of people have used the Naz. I think yeah. Todd Rundgren have a band so, well, that's and they what got we the cheap trick. Oh, we really? To, yeah. And they, they get some paying gigs. I think they record, I remember the very first time they go on, on tape with any recorded material. They record a Marvin Gaye cover. What? Of Hitchhike in 1964. Oh, man. But it's it's a Marvin Gaye cover. It doesn't go anywhere. Like, it, it doesn't, yeah. like, nothing happens. But they become... A little bit, a little like a sort of a Seeger type thing. They become a a local right. band in the Phoenix, and area. maybe have like one single that that kind of does okay. I think so. Yeah, I don't really. I mean, I know that they early on they 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 become like a house band at like a club, and they get some like a lot of fans, and then they're asked to. Um, be backup musicians is part of like a local production of Bye Bye Birdie. What? Yeah, and that's like where they get their initial taste of theatrics. Hi, Nancy. Hi, Ursula. What's a story? Martin Glory. What's a tale? Nightingale. Did you hear about Hugo and Kim? And okay. so they start using all these props. Right. Yet they're also evolving into sort of a art-heavy metal sort of thing not heavy metal because heavy metal doesn't exist at this point but bluesy they love the yardbirds they okay. talk about meeting yeah, yeah. the yardbirds and the yardbirds were their biggest idol in they, in arizona they're in like arizona. opening for 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 some of these bands that are cycling and they it. talk about meeting jeff beck and jeff beck hey you might want to meet this guy he's playing bass his name's jimmy page you know yeah right and so they have these experiences yeah but it's not until they pack up the van and go to la that right things sort of begin sort of i i just was listening to an interview where it's it's so great when you listen to alice cooper there there are stories that he he leans on over and over again you you can tell sometimes that he's just drawing on the things that he knows will get a reaction because he's talking about famous person x and it's just a, a crowd pleaser but um sometimes you'll get somebody that can can really draw it out of him these these finer details mm -hmm. and so you get the the frankly the better stories from him about the 60s and and 70s and the the first thing i heard about this early era when they first moved to la is that he says they were living in the basement of the chambers brothers in watts yep and that's where they meet Jimi hendrix yep. uh for the first time and Jimi hendrix introduces alice to uh shep gordon who will become uh I mean, who is still Alice's manager, um, but is is you know this crucial figure in, the, in this story, much like the Seeger story. Yeah, like a Punch Andrews type. Yeah, but he's he's really lovable, 
Character. In fact, there's a doc about him that I, th- that I feel Mike like we Myers, both... Mike Myers, I think, made, Yeah, right? because Mike Myers is one of his clients. <laughs> but Chef Gordon <laughs> cut his teeth. Bringing us full circle to Wayne's World yeah. already in, in the first five minutes. <laughs> but full, you know, full... Um, uh, Shep, his very first client is Alice Cooper. Right. Or the band. Now, this is, like, really important to say, I think, up front, and that, that I, I kind of had in the back of my mind, but... Alice Cooper is the name of a band. Correct. Of five the, guys. Definitely at this point. At this point. Yeah. I don't know how you got the name Alice Cooper. It's, you know, there's a million different stories. And usually we go to a city and somebody will ask me that. And I'll say, what's your favorite story? What, what is your favorite version of it? Because I keep hearing all these great stories of how I got the name Ouija Boards. That's and all the one this I stuff. heard. No. Uh, the best story is really the true story. We had this... Uh, this roadie who weighed about 400 pounds and it was a girl and she could beat up anybody in the band her name was alice cooper and uh, she threatened it no that's not true (laughs) that was good but it's good (laughs) the real name is just it's the nicest all-american name i could think of for the most unwholesome band you know at the time we were truly uh unwholesome uh very clockwork orange and everybody was peace and love and here was this band with their parent you know their mother's makeup on hair down to their waist and I mean, all we cared about was making noise and making trouble. So Alice Cooper seemed like a good name. And then Alice sort of took on a personality yeah. of his own over the we years. We kind of created this Frankenstein, you know. And, uh, and I'm still, the nice thing about Alice, about playing Alice, is I keep getting to add to him and subtract mm-hmm. to him. He's really like a piece of clay. I keep saying, oh, what do I want him to do this mm-hmm. year? Yeah, that's a good idea. Shock Rock is one of the labels that doesn't really mean much, but it's it's tossed around like early Alice Cooper was, was shocking. Right. A lot of times because of the clothes they wore. This is like the hippie era... People are already wearing some crazy stuff, but they're pushing the. They, they always say that they were, they were this wooden stake through the heart of the summer of love or something like that. Which I, I think is fair. Obviously, I think there were um, there were a lot of bands around, you know, po- post Woodstock that you know the the dark the that whatever that line. I'm not thinking of it, but but in fear and loathing. So now, less than five years later. You can go up on a steep hill in Las Vegas and look west. And with the right kind of eyes, you can almost see the high water mark. That place where the wave finally broke and rolled back. He talks about how the 60s kind of washes away and reveals this ugly underbelly. And that's sort of like the world we're in now where acid casualties and rockers are dying and things are not grooved. They're definitely on the underbelly side of things. I hate flowers, I'm sorry. Thank you, but I hate flowers. They hang out a lot with the doors. Right. A lot, in fact, They're a house band at a place called the Cheetah Club. When we were like 17, 18 years old, and uh, we opened for The Doors and all those bands, but we were just little kids, you know? But I know that Jim Morrison and, and uh, Glenn Buxton become, like, good friends. And okay. One of the great, you know, the, the, I think the original Doors, like the Waiting for the Sun rec- album cover, he, Morrison is wearing nothing but Glenn Buxton's clothing. Oh, is that right? Stuff like that. It's, they're very close. There's the Hendrix connection. They're... They're these guys that are big personalities, and so they're getting to know everyone. Yeah. And they've got these rabid fans, but their music just, I mean, I've listened to the early stuff. It is not easy to get into, man. It is. And it's this kind of thing where you're like, you know, their line is that, um, you know, they were going for chaos and confusion. I think that's probably the purest form of communication with somebody is total confusion. Don't you hate people that start making sense? (laughs) 
It gets, you know, just so average. But really, they're bad musicians <laughs> who just love being in L.A. and, like, being, uh, you know, dirtbag rock stars. And, you know, they're only so good. So if that's kind of their line to to make it work, is like, this is what we're trying to do, man. Like, if you don't get it. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, chutzpah in these yeah. guys. Like, they're knocking on doors. They're sort of acting like they're bigger than they are. Also, Shep Gordon, as you said, is this is his first client. There's, I've got a, a nice quote uh, from Shep. He said... I had some money to spend and I thought it would be fun to somehow get involved in rock in the rock and roll scene where people at least seemed to get laid a lot. But gradually I saw Alice's real potential and put more and more of myself into it. Even when all the money was gone, I still stuck with him. So Shep is as hungry as his clients are and he's pulling rock star manager level moves. During this phase, they end up picking up Michael Bruce becomes their rhythm guitarist. And he's one of the, really the primary songwriter in the band. I mean, they all sort of write songs. Yeah. It's a very collaborative thing, but Michael Bruce is this great uh, songwriter. And then Neil Smith is this blonde-haired drummer who is uh, just, he's like a, he's a stud. Yeah. I don't know how else to say it, but they're, they're, that's, the, that's the unit that, that congeals. No, we're the all-American kids, you know. It's like... Uh personify the uh, you know we're, we're like all americans if what we do is we just reflect what america's attitude is right now you know um people look at us as sort of some you know like a, a social scale they look at us the kids do and they go wow is that what we're all going to become <laughs> and it must be a little frightening to parents one of the things about alice that you learn is is his dad is a is a preacher is a minister and yeah. so from you know that's my father's one too and uh he was very supportive though yeah of them. it's not a footloose no, kind of story there's no it, reaction no, against in fact they total their their van at one point and their his his preacher dad comes and buys them a new van my father and i are best of friends He's, he, related very, he really related very much with the kids in the church mm. because he was very hip. Mm. And, uh, and the, actually, the kids in the church really liked him. The older people didn't like him. You know, My dad is sort of like a 50-year-old Alice Cooper. He's sort of a very theatrical preacher. He really is. He's very good, too. I like him. Does he draw the crowds? Yeah, he doesn't wear makeup or anything. You know, but he's, right. very, he's very, very hip. He doesn't wear a shroud or anything? No, 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 no. He's, he's very, you know, I, I can't be disrespectful because my, I really respect what my dad does, mm. and he respects what I do. And he took a lot of heat from it, from especially as they got more famous. Right. So Alice is, but he's close with his old man. They're, they've got the support, actually, of their parents. Most of them do. Buxton, not so much. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and Buxton sort of always was, um, you know, this this the stoner badass in the school. Um, and I feel like he kind of emboldens them to think, hey, we can do it. Like, we got the coolest dude in our town. Yeah. Like, if we got that, we can do anything. Uh, they're they're a gang. Right. Totally. And, to- and they live together. Like, uh, I one of the... Um, I keep thinking about Guns N' Roses as relates to Alice uh. Cooper because, you know, Guns N' Roses, they all lived in the same, you know, very small space for a while while they were writing Appetite for Destruction. And they're all guys from other places. And this, like, you know, brew that kind of sticks together. Yeah. Of, and, like, the nonstop partying as well. Yep. But Alice Cooper is, of course, you know, 20 years before that. And, you know, by the way, Guns N' Roses ends up opening 
for Alice on one of their earliest tours, you know, when he was doing his comeback. But they also record Under My Wheels. That was one of the other ways yeah, I got into... Uh, right? I think it was actually for some sort of tribute record, but okay. it was one of the ways I got into Alice Cooper, like oh. early stuff, because I heard this cover that that you know, I was searching out everything that Guns N' Roses did, and they do a great cover of Under My Wheels. Yeah. So, but yeah, they're living in a series of these like flop houses and getting kicked out and clearly annoying everyone, but they're such a good time. Yeah. That they're always being invited to new places. Right. You know? Right. No, I don't take anything seriously. I don't take anything seriously because I don't believe in being preached to. And so I refuse to preach to anybody else. And I get it. You know, I was I was really trying to, like, place myself in, in why this or what this scene is and why Alice Cooper at the time felt so um, fresh and... and uh, because I feel like, you know, we're so far removed. We're decades removed from this. But but these guys, the, you, the way you put it, that they're a gang, really, uh, really seals it for me. They're, 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 uh, they haven't broken through yet. And they've got s- so much attitude. And I think L.A. in particular really emboldens the undiscovered. Like you can really feel as though you're the greatest thing in the world and you're just about to break and these are these golden times. It just happens that the people that they're mingling with before they're all famous end up being like huge, huge stars like Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd before they break in America. And they're all just hanging out. They all want to break through. They're like 23 year old guys who have got you know, kind of silly ideas, and, and but also scene, grandiose ideas. Yeah, because they spent a lot of time with young Pink, Pink Floyd. Right. And the scene is not set. Like, uh, I, in this interview I was listening to with, with Pam DeBar, actually. Pam DeBar, also part of the Zappa scene early on. Um, but uh, Alice says that at that point, record companies were looking for the next Buffalo Springfield. So they're getting kicked out of, of record companies because they don't fit at all. Like the James Taylors of the world are, are, and the Jackson Browns are, are what record companies are looking for. They are not looking for Alice Cooper's or necessarily Led Zeppelin's in, in America. So this is like, this stuff is all about to pop. Yeah. And they're they are they are definitely cutting edge. They're pioneers in a lot of ways. But you do read story after story of them going into these record companies, bluffing their way in there. Yeah. And then they're playing them songs like "Refrigerator Heaven," which is a terrible song. I mean, it's and it's uh, you can't tell if they're being funny or not. We should play something from what? these. Er, well, early so days. by 1969, they cut their first album, which is "Pretties for You." Um, and why don't we play a track and then we can get into the story of of how they get their first. Uh, record deal um, but uh, this is this song is called Levity Ball I got my invitation to the annual Levity Ball seeing the location was within the mirror walking in my room I found I had nothing to Yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, you know, that's what all this stuff is. It, it, it's it's meandering. There are total shifts. Like in a three minute song, they're doing like twenty sec, twenty six changes. You yeah. know, it's it's tough. Um, and they say that you know it's their live presence that really is carrying this band it's not it's certainly not these first two records because (laughs) the first record so they somehow get there they have through through one of these basically groupies the gto girls who we've talked about maybe in the fanny episode but they're these they're these they're kind of these proud uh groupies is the word for it yeah so that's i just found this out so um before they were the GTOs, they were the Laurel Canyon Ballet Company. It was uh, Pamela DeBar and like four or five other girls. I mean, they're they're like seventeen, maybe. Um, they're just going around to shows and hopping up on stage and just dancing beside the band, um, band to band. And then they uh, they through one of them they meet uh, Frank Zappa, who is basically sort of. The, the count of Laurel Canyon. Yeah. You know, his house is is where sort of magical uh, things happen, meetings of the mind. I mean, Zappa was notoriously not a partier, but, but yet everybody gathers a- around Zappa's feet. Something about his, he's the energy, he's get Captain Beefarts around. Little feet. As Little said. feet, the factory. There, there's, there's a lot of them. Um, and, and when when Zappa and the Mothers of Invention, I think they come out with that was the record's Freak Out, right? The, yeah, the, it's their early record, and it gets a lot of press. Yeah, and it becomes kind of a hipster record, and it actually does extremely well in Europe and and Scandinavia, in Germany. Totally Those, makes sense. They, they sort of put them on par with Beethoven, they say, but they maybe not that high. But Zappa is this larger than life character, and through through the GTOs, through these these this sort of network of very like kind of high powered influential groupies they they get an introduction to zappa some friends told me they were coming over to audition and i was upstairs sleeping and i had this basement in this log cabin in in, uh, laurel canyon it was real big and we used to practice in there so they'd come in and set up their equipment while i was still asleep and i woke up to it went down and there they were playing their little hearts out why did you think he had the potential to be a rock star? Well, I didn't make up my mind right then. I waited until I saw him play in concert a few times, and uh, they were opening act for us several times, and invariably when they would play, thousands of people would leave the room, and I knew they had something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I followed that. Leave the room and you knew yeah, they had they, something? they had, um, well, people had a very violent response to it, and if you look at the people who were responding that way, and then you look at the response, and you listen to what's going on, you can make a, an assumption that something is going on i guess alice's line is that frank zappa said i don't get it but i'm gonna sign you (laughs) and that like i'm signing you because i don't get it yeah which further i just sort of emboldens this band that is is aimless and and is kind of struggling to like piece their sound together to be even more chaotic and and confusing i mean they're they're, they really lean into it by the time we see pretties for you like i said even the hippies hated us we had no friends at all and that was that was the if you can take that much energy and it was a good show it was was so powerful that they hated to see think that that was the future and what's his so zappa's like technically the producer on the first record but he just shows up one morning and like they do a couple of rehearsal takes, it's like that's the record. Yeah, it's evidently he was he was more of an engineer than a producer because he says Zappa said he wanted their live sound. He wanted that energy that clearly worked live, you know, where they're clearing out rooms. Hey! 
<laughs> Literally. Yeah. The people are leaving yeah. in the middle of their sets because they can't handle it. This whole crowd tried to get out at once. They trample each other to death. Just so we can get My God, do you feel the floor shaking? This whole damn thing is going to collapse. I'm going over to talk to Elliot Asher. Who? You know real estate, the developer. Over there with Charlotte Rady. So Zappa has a deal with Warner Brothers. He has his own record label, Bizarre, I think it's it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, and early 70s Warner Brothers, um, Warner Reprise is, you know, this is the gold of, <laughs> of rock. It's it, amazing. And this is why, one of the reasons why for their second record, somehow they're saddled with David Briggs, who's like Neil Young's great producer. Oh, yeah. He's like produced all of, you know, after the gold rush he's 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 the guy behind the dials for neil young forever and he hated alice cooper he apparently just kept calling it psychedelic shit and like they they knew that he didn't like them he was just trying to he had to, he was clearly assigned to this band and and he did not um they hated how the record sounded they ended up used using like the rehearsal takes on it and so for their second time trying to get into the studio they really have a a, just an awful experience. But they're playing hundreds and hundreds of live shows. They're right. constantly pl- at playing out. Right. And so the chemistry, something is happening. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they, they when they talk about it, a lot of people talk in those early days, they talk about Glenn Buxton being just uh, sort of a prodigy and having his own sound very early on. Oh, interesting. And being, being like a very, very like, um, you know, singular guitarist. But... <laughs> You know, it's it's not really working. I'm just reading that line that Neil Smith says about David Briggs that you just said in my notes. I'm like, oh, I did write that down. Psychedelic shit. <laughs> He's like, he hates the music. Oh. And so, of course, they're not going to put their best foot forward for him. Yeah. But... That album's called Easy Action. Easy Action. Which has... It's the guys on the cover, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I For the longest time, I thought... Because they have long hair... Uh, I thought it was was uh, four women, like nude, with their their butt cheeks showing. No, it is not. No, it's four dudes. It's four dudes, and you know, they're um, Alice Cooper is a band that's getting banned left, right, and center from early days. In fact, the cover for Pretty's for You is like it's it's got kind of got a raunchy cover. Oh, that it's gets, not what it is now. It gets but... banned, and Easy Action, like everywhere they go, they're pushing the envelope, and and yeah. They talk about it. That was what they were doing. Like that was what they were really excited to do. It's what to, they've got. You know, they are flexing their biggest muscle, which is being like weird and provocative. Yeah, I mean, what is what it was? Uh, Dunaway says yeah. that the calling card of Alice Cooper was "quote unquote" rousing curiosity, rousing curiosity. So people would just be like, "What is this?" We didn't even have enough money to buy gimmicks, so we, anything we could find backstage was was part of the show. You know, find a mop. Well, oh, that'll work. Right. You know, hey, get a chicken. Get and, a yeah, chicken. anything that they would throw on stage, really, was, was, a, was a, a gimmick, because nobody did anything at that period. Everybody played a guitar solo for 14 hours, you know, and, oh, that's great, you know, that's wonderful. But this thing showed them, it was, it was a flash, it was an, and it was an American sort of vehicle. In 69, uh, I guess they're touring for the first album, and there's the Toronto Rock and Roll Revival. Do you with, know this? With Lennon. With, right. right. His first thing outside of the Beatles. 
Really? Yeah, he's, he plays uh, Cold Turkey in in um, and uh, and and come together. I think in uh, in Toronto. And then Yoko does like a thirty minute oh, yeah. sound collage, <laughs> which really <laughs> which really doesn't endear to many rock fans. But yeah, they they're they're present at that. Alice Cooper, it just turns out, especially now. I'm now I'm talking about the man. He's present and on the ground floor with so many things that happened during this phase. Like, you're like, hey, right. did, did you know uh, Neil Young? Well, I worked with this producer. You know, did, did you? <laughs> yeah, everyone. Everyone. It turns out they had some kind of connection to. So that happens. And finally. So at that show, though, oh, what is, is the one that becomes part of the Alice Cooper legend, uh, which oh. is the chicken incident. Ah, uh, the chicken incident. Um, and I love this, that somehow... A chicken made its way on the stage. There is no backstory for the chicken. Who who put the chicken on the stage? But uh, Alice has a ravenous crowd in front of him, and he throws the chicken out, having no experience with a chicken. He says, thinking that the chicken will fly away to safety, but instead the uh, the the rockin' crowd tears the chicken apart. Um, and then the the next day, the headlines read that Alice Cooper bit the head off of a chicken. And that's even you know. Fast forward 35 years later, or 30 years later, and like I'm a teenager, and that's one of the things I'm hearing right. about Alice Cooper. Oh, that's the guy who bit yeah, yeah, the chicken. Yeah. Right. You know, it's like, wait a second, that, that never happened. But the band, they understand the power of publicity very early on, and so they're constantly spreading fake rumors about themselves. Right. And so he just, they go with. Yeah, but tell me you didn't kill the chicken. Well. <laughs> Colonel Sanders kills chickens. I mean, you know. They have this foresight to know that they can build a legend for themselves. I heard that without any good music, <laughs> without any good music yet, yeah. um, and that's why it comes as such a surprise that the third album, in my opinion is one of the great rock records of all time. So little Bob Ezrin, who's like 19 years old at this From point. From Toronto. Toronto. He's an assistant producer. He's sent down so that so that so that the um, basically his boss can stop answering Shep Shep Gordon will stop bothering him. Yeah. And he goes and he sees their live show, which at this point is just bananas and does involve feathers and you know all sorts of weird props and and i i don't know if it, the guillotine's not there yet but there's crazy stuff but it's going getting on stage. there and i mean they're, they're already the way, developing that that you know violent side of, yes. of the act there's a darkness that's early on and in fact with like levity ball and you listen to some some of these early songs they're, they're pushing the quote-unquote alice cooper character which yeah. they feel like all five of them create we, we use violence because it's sensationalism, and I love sensationalism. You know, I think that that's, that's the whole basis of my show. I would much rather pick up uh, a, mag- a magazine, I won't name with magazine, that says, Boy Born With Dog's Head. More people would go to an airplane wreck than a circus, just because that's the way that, that uh, human nature is, you know? And so, like, what I do is I just give them images. I throw images. There's a snake out. If I throw the snake out there and breathe yeah, out there, the you will, you'll take it sexually, maybe. She'll take it funny. She'll take it serious. So that's one. If I throw a crutch out there, by the end of the show, you have 20 different images. You'll walk away with a whole different story than she will. Mm-hmm. So I'm making you use your imagination. Anyway, Ezrin sees it, and he sees something in this band that he wants. To, he thinks he can capture. At this point, they're living in Detroit. Yeah, Pontiac. Pontiac, Detroit. 
and they've become part of the Detroit scene, which, which? is with Seeger and the Stooges. They they play a lot of gigs MC5. with the Stooges. So they're 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 not. Although they're, they're dressed they're, like women, they, yeah. they, they constantly are getting made fun of for dressing like women. It's very early on androgynous sort of stuff, and it's uh it's really happening for them in yeah. all sorts of ways. And then find, what they need though is a producer to kind of come in and strip the sound down and give them some direction and harness the talent that's there. Yeah, and and Alice will does give a lot of credit uh to the town and to the scene. He says they were all, uh speaking about LA uh, where they had sort of crashed and burned, they were all on the wrong drug for us. They were on acid, and we were drinking beer. We fit much more in Detroit than we did anywhere else. So they go in the studio uh, for one track, though, right? Oh, I th- I thought it was... The, well, they, they start out with, I think the first song they record is on 18. Okay. Which was originally an eight-minute I Wish I Was 18 Again. Yeah. That then uh, gets pared down. He says the Ezra sort of takes it through them, takes them through it note by note, until they have, you know, this song, uh, "I'm 18," which becomes a hit. I mean, for me, I want to hear. Let's hear the very first song off the off "Love It to Death," which is the record that comes out of here. Can we play that? Yeah. Caught in a dream. The fair, I mean, and and like, I'd say like the the whole record is is just badass, start it, to finish. It's I, I don't great. have a problem with a single part of that album. <laughs> I mean, I, uh, I I'm 18 becomes a big big smash hit. Yeah, not on the level of some of the songs that are going to come right after it, but I'm 18. It, it it does it becomes an anthem. Our audiences are probably the same audiences that go to the Osmond Brothers concerts. You know, it just we're on different ends of the spectrum. You know, they're the heroes and we're the villains. It paves the way, I think, for Vince, Alice, mm-hmm. uh, to start to understand what a successful song from that band is. And yeah. the, the, the anthem that clicks with a generation, he's going to recreate over and over again, as, as we'll see. But uh, 18... Uh, really locks it in for him. Mm-hmm. Um, we also uh, get another aspect um, with the ballad of Dwight Fry, uh, which is the beginning of of the insanity yeah. uh, theme in the, in the songs and and split personality um, and madness. I want to get out of here. Got it. 
that's beginning here. And I, that I actually always surprises me. Straight jacket, right? I mean, like he, he's at that pr- point, they start to pretty soon. Yeah, Ballard Dwight Fry. Dwight Fry, by the way, is the is the actor who played Renfield in the 1931 Dracula with Bela Lugosi. Yeah, and uh, this is also part of the whole thing. Is not just the macabre, but the pop culture uh, yes. obsession. I collect autographs. I collect all villain autographs. Like uh, Bela Lugosi. Um, I have uh, Lon Chaney, Bela Lugosi. I have uh, Edgar Allan Poe. Mm-hmm. I have uh, Jack the Ripper. He's that kid from the 50s that sat in front of the TV and was totally captivated. He loves TV. And you have loves to understand TV. that in order to, like, <laughs> later on when he's appearing on The Muppet Show and on yeah. Hollywood Squares, his bandmates don't get it. Lots of people hold it against him. But the whole time, he loves TV. And when the quiz shows in the afternoon... And the people go, how can that person do that? You know, it's, I've heard so much about him. They put him on TV. I love, I love making parents mad. Like he and Glenn Bucks, Devoted. especially, they just like, they're saying, hey, do you know who played so-and-so in this episode of Bewitched? You know, and, and like, like, oh yeah, I do. I know that episode. You know, but this is, they, they collect TV guides. It's just the fact that anybody that puts time into anything, I, I appreciate, you know, even if it's awful. We were just talking about Green Acres was a great show. <laughs> Honestly, you know, if you thought about it in the right, Gilligan's Island was a great show. Oh, come on. Well, the... I mean, he just a theme song, you know, pretty bizarre. <laughs> well, that's what's amazing is that um, I, I read a, uh, I, it was a Rolling Stone sort of like, uh, it was in 73, so it's a little bit later than where we are right now. But the um, the reporter is talking about sort of going in thinking these guys are, are savage animals, like, you know, the, the chicken head story is is part of their legend thinking like I'm going to be staring down the face of evil and what he discovers are pop culture nerds on the level of pop culture nerds that uh, are alive and well in in 2021. Yeah, and but they were just But like, the, this is 1970. Filtered through Phoenix and sort of hippie in Zappa and uh, right. and it's a very Again, it's a very um, unique chemistry that is that is forming around these guys, and Ezrin is the one who sharpens it. Cooper says when when Ezrin saw them for the first time and saw what basically his assignment was, uh, he said meeting them was as if he had just opened a surprise package and found it full of maggots. <laughs> I mean, there's there's like a real. Um, element of kind of you know uh yeah they're they love being provocative they love being sort of wicked and pushing the boundaries yeah and yet there's a thoughtfulness to it and a, a humor a lot of humor because i think everybody has enough intelligence to know that we're that we are doing an act you know people expect me a lot of people expect me to be running around chasing groupies with axes and things you know <laughs> which i only do on weekends <laughs> without the sense of humor this is a totally different band and also makes uh, the darkness, which is everywhere, fun. It makes it work. I mean, you think about, you realize that Alice Cooper, the, as Vincent, he really, um, you know, he, you don't have these sort of leather clad, uh, um, uh, heavy metal sort of chain guys before Alice Cooper. You no. Know? We, we were, um, Back when we did the Kiss episode, you know the Kiss guys, they see Alice Cooper and they're like, "Let's do it! Let's do it!" One band with four Alice Coopers in right. it, and then of course they steal Cooper's producer later, Bob Ezrin. It just yep. so happens that they could 
they're even worse musicians than the guys in Alice Cooper, who, by the way, had gotten pretty darn good at this point. Right. And even still, it says Ezrin, um, you know, is basically putting them through boot camp. Yeah. And so they, but they end up, I mean, I could skip ahead to Killer, right? I mean, we, we've... It's worth talking about the debutante uh, uh, debut of Warner Brothers throws a party not quite knowing what Shep Gordon has in store to, to launch um, I'm 18. <laughs> the descriptions and of this party are just legendary. They're at the Ambassador Hotel, and there's elements in play that match, like, a Lady Gaga video now. Mm-hmm. You know, there's... Um, Huge ice sculpture of Porky Pig in the middle of the room. Yeah, there's, there's cigarette girls that are transvestites. There's... Um, uh, like 300 pound strippers. Yes. There's um, women jumping out of cake on angel dust and throwing cakes at people who had no idea like what they were in store yeah, for. The they legitimately yeah. thought it was a debut uh, for some 18 year old named Alice Cooper that they had never heard of. And like Richard Chamberlain is there. Uh, and instead they're getting socked in the face with cake. There are certain cities that I go to where the audiences, they spend all their time trying not to have fun because they want to look sophisticated. And I just I just don't believe in any sort of sophistication when it comes to audience. I think they should be very tribal. It's it's uh, like utter depravity according to like 1970, you know, upper crust uh, uh, socialites. Um, but it's also like like a classic Hollywood stunt. And I think that that's what Alice loves the most is that he loves he's living stunts. a dream. He's, yeah. And they, um, so when, when it's almost like when you have the cliches of the, uh, rock and roll debauchery, especially in LA that kind of form, uh, I mean, the, the ones, the Alice Cooper band is archetypal in this regard. Yeah. It, it when it when you when it comes to like pushing the envelope in every way and having the partying and they they say that basically like everyone who wanted to look for a party in LA came looking for Alice Cooper so 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 people would burn out of they they'd kind of go home but but the guys in the band could never get away. Right. Because they were known as so much fun. Right. And uh, so yeah they but so they have less and less time to write music but they still have a backlog of years and years of working on stuff. So Ezrin takes him back into the studio. 71. 71. And they do they they make Killer, which you know, I think um I I'm 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 tr- I'm torn as to whether it's my favorite. I think that it's these pretty first, great. these first 5 records are all and I'm not counting the Zappa ones. They're all just knockouts. Yeah. And uh Killer, I think Johnny Rotten, you know, John Lydon calls yeah. it the greatest rock and roll album of all time. And from the very beginning of Under My Wheels into Be My Lover, uh it is just I mean Under My Wheels just like you say Under My Wheels and I hear in my head You were under my wheels, honey. 
it's it's sinister, but it's crunchy. I mean, the bass lines are always really inventive. It's just alchemy. And yeah, Alice is really learning to sing here. Yeah. Hey. I mean, that's what blows my mind is that he's becoming more and more of a front man. Um, but his vocals, like, are so distinctive. I, how he does that rasp, how he wails the way he wails, and it sounds like a, like a growl. I mean, he looks and sounds like the cartoon villain in a Disney movie. <laughs> you know, he's like a rat, yeah, and, and he's and developing this. He's really, like, flexing this Alice character, which he, you know, constantly and talks And they start about. to finally, I think around this period, they start to put the eyeliner on him. Like, he, he starts to get this black the, thing the around clown, his eyes. The clown the clown look, which is his... Which is awesome. Classic look, and it's, he's... Frankly, know. it's better than Kiss. I mean, of course, Kiss ripped him off, but the the more subtle, just the, the lines on the eyes and then the down, the frown yeah. is great. I mean, one of the things... we the riding crop. People, <laughs> it's, it's worth saying that this is a couple years before Roxy Music and David Bowie. Yes. And while it's not glam rock, because it, it's a little too Detroit for that, it's yeah. a little too like beer drinking for that. Yeah. There is an artsiness to it that is is kind of like a is is a little bit like an American equivalent. Yeah. Especially with the well, it's high the version concept. that works in America. The version that works in America, <laughs> exactly. I, I've always wanted to ask: Was that a period that there was a lot of people who really tried to put David Bowie in the Ziggy years in with the Alice Cooper? thing because yeah, of the absurd well it was because of i the think it was inevitable i don't know it's not absurd well, I mean, but both were doing broad category well but people you know, tend to do things like that yes they? they do have a tendency i kind of expected all that to you know happen um and i just trusted in my own um conceptions that eventually we'd split off and have separate identities alice and myself you know. worked out okay yeah i mean just trusted in my own optimistic ideas of what I could do. Halo of Flies is an incredible song on there. Yep. And they break into, you know, a few of my favorite things, like the, from right. Sound of Music, like they quote that in the middle of it. Daggers and contacts and bright shiny limos. I gotta watch that turns into a lifeboat. Glimmering nightgowns, poisonous as cobras. Silence are under the heel of my shoe. Well, what I just noticed playing the song is the album cover. And I've seen this album cover a million times, but it's the first time you see the snake. The snake, Conchita, I think, or Cachita, uh, or something like that. Someone, the python. Some, no, it's a boa. That oh, someone, it's a boa. Someone throws it on stage, and Neil Smith uh, just decides to keep it. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's the story. And so all of a sudden they have this and they're uh, sticking to it. <laughs> boa constrictor that they're that's behind. You know, they just keep incorporating more and more things into their act. That's what they're thinking about all the time. Say they have a pillow fight and they're like, "Hey, we should have feathers on stage." Oh, you know, we've we, someone threw a, a snake here. Let's use the snake in some way. Let's. Uh, that makes a ton of sense because it is. It's layer upon layer upon layer upon layer until it's just like. Madness on yeah, it's, stage. It's madness on stage. And like you could see why they love Dali yeah. and they end up meeting Salvador Dali, I think in 1972. But yeah. the, the surrealism and um, I mean, they're very much like I'd say like a adolescent surrealism at this point. Totally. And um, but 
that's what's it, it continues to build until it's got this it's this soup that makes almost total sense and no sense at all uh, this is a whole new thing where you have to come in and put a little icing on the cake uh, but killer itself is like a garage rock you know masterpiece it's such a good record and it, it, ezrin is this punk kid who just is like really got some gifts himself completely it's it's a perfect marriage i mean he's playing on on a lot of songs and he's he's definitely a maestro i mean he's he's a bit of a genius behind behind the scenes i mean totally the um you know, and and then of course they they they're touring and their tours after I'm eighteen they get they start playing larger and larger spots and they're playing with bigger bigger bands but they don't become superstars until seventy two until schools out schools out they finally have a song uh, in schools out I think it was the best selling single in the entire Warner Brothers catalog. At that point, or is that right? Like, and possibly for a long time afterward, schools out became it's it's just a monster well, hit. Again, I mean, it's a clear level up from eighteen. You know that when your boys get out of school, you know next year, if you played schools out for them, they would instantly understand the power and the value behind it. It clicks the, the, so the, fast. The riff. For me, that's also dazed and confused. Like that's what oh, I yeah, also yeah. think of because, like, that was another marker for our generation. Yeah. But schools out. I mean, this record is also notorious because uh, they they have enough pull at this point to make Warner Brothers um, design this insane sleeve. I mean, the actual album turns oh, yeah. into a school desk, and you open it up, and there's like like a switchblade and all this sort of fun stuff, and they've carved their names onto the front, and it's it's an event, and it's it's geared at sort of you know. Base, at their fan base, but it's such a crossover hit that they, it opens every door they could possibly want to open. Yeah. And it's not, never has been my favorite Alice Cooper album. I find part of it a bit meandering because I never had like a yeah. history with West Side Story at all. So it yeah, doesn't. Yeah, there's a West Side Story sort of takeoff there. And I, you know what? I couldn't agree with you more. I think it's the weak link of all these records. I, yeah, I agree. However, in sort of compiling my playlist to listen to all this stuff looney tune and this is spoiler alert is one of my favorite alice cooper songs um and i would have never 
really listened to it had it not been for us deciding to do this episode because I always looked at Schools Out as like, ah, that's the album I don't like. Yeah. Basically. I mean, the song Public Animal number nine is pretty good. But it you want to play some Looney Tune? Yeah. Man, you know, I don't regret it all. They locked me up for good. there that Ezrin's like pushing them with horns and strings. The horns! And, and they're... I, that song is a total revelation to me. And of course, you know, and he's working in suicide. Like this suicide track and, and the insanity is is this thread that just sows deeper and deeper with every album. Now, the, the unfortunate thing at this point, I think we're in 1972 and we've <laughs> been, been talking a while. The um, Buxton has uh, serious alcohol problems. Yeah. And he sort of starts to fade at this point. Although, they moved the operation to Greenwich, Connecticut. <laughs> they all live in a, in a mansion in Greenwich, Connecticut, oh where they, 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 the next record is Billion Dollar Babies, and that's where they record half of it in Greenwich, which is just so funny. They really want to be closer to New York, to their, um, and, uh, to their management. And at this point, at least according to Dunaway, the management is starting to separate Vincent or Alice from the rest of the band, and uh-huh. and and there's so there's been so much partying going on for basically seven years that the the fabric is starting to fray a little bit. The the live performances are explosive. They have the guillotine now. They have an electric chair. You know, during Black Juju, I think he gets electrocuted. He's uh, he gets like blood everywhere and all sorts of other ways. They're they're really making it like a musical almost experience. How far can you go? I don't know. We we haven't hit that point yet. I'm just wondering the day that the guillotine doesn't work. <laughs> it, it has one safety catch on it, and if it doesn't work, it'll be a great show. But you can only do it once because they'll be pulling my real head out of the box if that if that, if that doesn't work. So are you going to perform a, a live, real death on the I stage? Don't, well, I hope not. <laughs> Hopefully not. You know, I, you know, I like me too much to, to die. Billion Dollar Babies is the next record that comes out that Ezrin does. It gets another Ezrin record. I think yeah. it comes out 73. Is that right? Yep, that's right. And it, uh, it opens with Hello, Hooray, which... Uh, this uh, I wouldn't. I would have never known that that's a cover. It's a cover. If it's a song that like Judy Collins made made famous. Hello. Rain to 
I get now Kinda. in my head that makes that makes sense because Ezrin came from Toronto where there was a big folk scene. Uh-huh. Like, is that I s- the avenue for Hello Hooray? Maybe? I don't know. I do not know. I know that, that Alice Cooper, his favorite artist of all time is Burt Bacharach. Oh, so well, when people give him, hey man, when people cool. give him a hard time later on, I mean, he loved the Beatles. He he yeah. loves all these, you know, out, you know, Zap and all this stuff. But when when people give him a hard time for sort of being too much of a balladeer later, yeah, he hadn't. He's never hidden that. Like he, no, no, no. Bacharach was he his hasn't favorite. hidden any of this. Like no. it's all there. It's just there are certain elements that are louder at this point. Ballads are easier to write than rock and roll songs, really, because rock and roll songs are. are it's so hard to be original with rock and roll, you know. Ballads, though, are, are much easier to write. You can get a lot more senti- you know, s- sentimental in them. And, and Alice's idea of sentimental is pretty Twilight Zone anyways. Billion Dollar Babies is a great album. For me, it's, it's almost too polished now. Oh. Um, I, at, at first listen, it's got everything. Like, you, you hear it, and it's so hooky and great. And actually... Now, now that we're talking, the thing that got me on Alice Cooper's radar, probably even before Wayne's World, was No More Mr. Nice Guy. Okay. I heard that like once, and I was like, like it was a drug. I was like, how do I hear more of this song? Who sang that? Where do I get it? Yeah. I used to be such a sweet, sweet thing to lay a hold of me. song to me is the best of their anthems yeah i love the verses to it i think it's um it, it's still got the sense of humor to it and i mean the whole record it's uh it's a elected great record is great uh, elected, ra- raped and freezing i mean it's a i don't know how else to say it, it, it it's a lampooning of sort of uh I, I don't know, predatory men, but there's a necrophilia thing happening. Well, with I Love the Dead, too. I Love the Dead. This is, these are all themes that kind of, how can we be as shocking as, we, we didn't even talk about dead babies off of a, I know. Off a killer. Dead babies, you know, won't keep things on the shelf. Like it, it's, it, it, there's a lot going on. Generation Landslide is a good song. Generation <laughs> Landslide is a great song, and he actually considers it one of his greats. It has a Dylan-esque quality. Yeah. I would say... Most, if not all, the songs on this album are fantastic. For me, though, I, I just don't click like I do with with the um, with Killer and the first record, Killer and and Love the first and Love It to Death. Um, but uh, what do you think? Should we play 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 Generation Land? Perfect. Land Please 
I mean, this this is the band Alice Cooper at the height of their powers. I, I feel like it, it it kind of conceptually, fame wise, production wise, it doesn't get any better than this. No, it's a it's a, I think it's a fantastic record. And in fact, there's a d- deluxe version that's got a live show like tacked onto it of what they're how they sounded live at this point, and they sound amazing. Yeah, and I think that they were the biggest grossing live band in America in 1973 or something like that. They were huge. The huge. band itself was 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 fracturing at this point. Right. And Alice was spending all his time in Hollywood as one of the Hollywood vampires or whatever they called it was like a like a drinking Which is club. What? Keith Moon, Keith Lennon, Moon, Nilsson. Nilsson. Uh, Jack Oliver Ni- Reed. Jack Nicholson is part of it. Okay. And they're just luscious, you know. Yeah. And and but anyone who comes through they have like an upper room at some at one of these restaurants and they just they just drink and uh, and they tell stories and and of course part of that that puts Alice in all kinds of circles like yes. you can sort of do any sort of combination with Alice Cooper yeah, for a all... Google search you'll see Colonel Sanders with Alice Cooper <laughs> Cooper you'll see he has stories about being in Vegas with Elvis uh, Liza Minnelli Linda Lovelace and uh, and like one other oh Ch- Chubby Checker yeah. it's like all in one place just hanging out and like Elvis is doing karate shows in front of them and like wielding his his pistols I mean, it's, it's you know after a hard day of going to parties I I always sit back go to my mirror and sort of put a little whiplash on why whiplash well maybe because it tastes so good this sort of stuff this stuff wouldn't be allowed to happen anymore there's there's a wild west element to it that is that is that is is really easy to romanticize I'm yes sure. and i know that the there's a lot of legend of, and it could only happen then because it could happen then so, otherwise I mean, cameras would be popping out and they'd be live streaming and then it's you know it wouldn't be able to happen but yeah. you'd have eldon john is a big element here like he becomes friends with all these guys and so does um i mean even even at some point gets to know sinatra i mean right. there's Alice is again. He's, he's the guy living his best life to have around. And by the way, they just say it's a bottomless beer for him. Yeah, and he on stage. It's part of the Alice Cooper character on stage. Is, and he starts to his performances start to falter too. But Glenn Bucks and they start to like basically turn him down in the mix. Oh, and so much so that a lot of his parts on Billion Dollar Babies were played by Dick Wagner. Oh yeah, figures in pretty heavily to the Alice Cooper story. Their final album as a as the original. You know, quintet uh, called "Muscle of Love." It's all about basically supposed to be about sexual awakening or something, uh, and that gets poo-pooed as like not a very good record just because it's not billion-dollar babies. But I think it's pretty great. I mean, I, there's I, a lot of cool stuff on here. I mean, we got to talk about uh, "Man with the Golden the Gun." The Man with the Golden Gun. It has the Pointer Sisters on backup vocals, by the way, and Ronnie Spector of Phil Spector's ex-wife. But you'll never see. 
there was one Bond movie to have a theme by Alice Cooper, it would be The Man with the Golden Gun. The, the, he, he claims that they turned it in a day late. That they tried, they studied all the John Barry, like, you know, uh, orchestrations. They really tried extremely hard to write a, J- a James Bond. They were, because they're such, you know, pop culture guys. Yeah. And they, and they they recorded it, and it's got the horns, and it's got the different sections, it's got these amazing backup singers. And I guess they had already signed the uh, the contract with Lulu. You know, the I think she's Australian or yeah. English. Uh, like sort of, you know, teeny bopper. Yeah. Who ends up marrying a, one of the Gibb brothers, I think Maurice Gibb of the Bee Gees. But um, they, so, so it just gets stuck on this album, and it's a great song. It's a really great song. But they were shooting for the, for the rafters, and they just like... They just missed. They were too drunk or something like that. And, oh, man. Uh, I just love, I mean, you know, that's the one with the uh, Christopher Lee, Hervé Villachez, uh, Roger Moore as, as James Bond. It's the wackiest Bond there ever was. I could have shot you down when you landed, but that would have been ridiculously easy. You see, Mr. Bond, like every great artist, I want to create an indisputable masterpiece once in my lifetime. The death of 007, mano a mano, face to face. A duel between titans. My golden gun against your Walther PPK. I know that during the um, making of this record, that's when Buxton is, doesn't play on it at all, but he gets credited for, for the sake of the fans. And um, Ezrin. They, he gets into a fight with Michael Bruce and again Michael Bruce is the the guy who wrote most of the hits with Alice yeah. Alice did a lot of the lyrical stuff but Bruce is the is this the hit, sort of hit songwriter and he, they, at this point they're all kind of unhappy and they're hung over all the time yeah. and so it, the record comes out and it's <laughs> I just gotta circle back on what you were saying about what the theme is uh I, I I wrote down in my notes, and this is in quotes because clearly Alice said it. The theme was urban sex habits. <laughs> it's like I think it's like if people have perversions. We just want to let everyone know that they really exist, or something like that. It's like, well, thanks for this. So Ezrin, okay, so Ezrin like drops out, and Jack Douglas fills in. Jack Douglas, who ends up producing Cheap Trick, right? Again, the Constellation Titans. Titans. It's it's all there. Um, but there's, I like Teenage Lament 74. Um, yep. Uh, there's, I think that the song um, about New York, the first song on there, I think it's called like uh, Hippo. It's about Big Apple Dreamin', Hippo's Big Apple Dreamin'. But then the one you and I keep singing, for, which is funny, is Hard Hearted Alice has got these great backup vocals. It that, is. It's, it's sort of a ballad. Should we play that? Yeah, play, the, play that like a couple minutes in. I, I mean, I love that song, and I, I, I love his vocals, but it, you're right. It does feel like a step down after Billion Dollar Babies, which is so tight thematically. The whole, you know, the, the political themes, the, the lampooning that happens in Billion Dollar Babies is just so... And, and seeing Alice Cooper basically as Uncle Sam and all that iconography, mm-hmm. it works so well that when you see muscle of love it's just kind of like eh, it's kind of yeah. gross again it's gonna gross again the wheels are coming off the bus and alice is just 
totally drunk. So you have to be drunk when you are Alice. Yeah, you have to be drunk to put up with Alice. And so they go on hiatus, um, quote-unquote hiatus, but Alice and Ezrin kind of decide to start working together again. And right. that's when I believe, isn't it? Welcome to my nightmare results from that. Yeah. Um, which is, By the way, at this point, uh, Alice Cooper was dating Raquel Welch. Well, she was after him. She was after him, and he claims he, he like had to avoid her all the time because he was so into the woman who had become his wife. That's what he says in, the, in, his, in his autobiography, which I've read all of, which is, by the way, 40% about golf. 40, 40% about The man loves golf. He loves golf. Um, Cindy, you're going to be the caddy? Yes. I drive the cart. She was going to be a Continental, but she decided to be a caddy. <laughs> it's a pleasure to hear you. Tell me, what's, the, what's your handicap? Uh, golf. <laughs> Can you tell us what you fired. Get out of here. You don't want to tell us anything about what you shoot for 18? Or? No, I shot, uh, we shot pretty good. We shot 25 under par for two days Great. with Frank Beard. Fabulous. Yeah, and we finished third place, so I'm really happy about it. But yeah, he he says I'm the only one who who who, who ran away from Raquel Welch. That's madness. And because uh, he was sort of the it guy, you know. But he, he was. was also, you know, he in no universe is this man good looking. I mean, he's just it's <laughs> <laughs> again, he looks like a rat that crawled out of the sewer. <laughs> but welcome to my nightmare is the next thing, and that has still has got the hard rock on it. Ezra is more of a concept record. There's a lot of sound effects. You know, you can see. Ezrin you is get some Ezrin uh, development happening. You hear on Department of Youth that once again he loves the sound of kids like singing along, screaming, uh, you know, uh, rock lyrics because that happens on God of Thunder on Destroyer. It happens on you know, uh, of course, it happens on another brick in the wall. Oh right, because he produces the wall. Again, I, clearly, like that's the Ezrin sound is kids uh, chanting. <laughs> But you also get Vincent Price doing a monologue up there. He's the king of like putting sound effects and making it more sound cinematic. Yes. And yet also, he's also just worked with Lou Reed doing Berlin. Right. And so he brings some of those musicians over, including Dick Wagner, and they write this record, Welcome to My Nightmare. I want to show you my wonderful spider collection. I don't like spiders. I don't like witches. And I don't like you at all. Little boy, remember our bargain. Yeah. Spiders are such endearing little creatures, <laughs> very much like you. But before I show you my most renowned prizes, do tell me, are you pleased with your excursion so far? I'm, I mean, you're not afraid, are you? You don't want to wake up, do you? Well, I wouldn't mind. Well, you can't wake up. It's a, it's a great sounding record. It's extremely polished. Conceptually, it's, it's fairly... Tight. I mean, he's going for the horror element like all all the way here. You know, I'll I'll be honest. Like I thought, because Welcome to My Nightmare was is is sort of seen as one of his great records. That was the album I got when I was whatever it's, twenty. When it's I was got a like comic book vibe. And by the way, of course, I think at this point he is and he has his own Marvel comic 
Alice. Oh, he does? I think around then, right? Well, possibly. I mean, the song Cold Ethel is good. (laughs) Department of Youth, Cold Ethel. Well, this is the new... Another another song about necrophilia, I think, right? It is, just like, you know, the the madness theme, which is going to show up here, the anthem... Uh, That's an Alice Cooper thing, but also, you know, the song about a character and the character's name is is the title of the episode. Steven. Like Steven. Steven is is actually the, is sort of the, um, you know, the protagonist of Welcome to My Nightmare. I always looked at the Steven character as sort of the innocent Alice. I've always used Steven as my innocent side, my my victim side. But it's not my favorite record. I got to say, like, I prefer... And true Alice Cooper fans would think this is just anathema, but I prefer Go to Hell. I love Go to Hell. The next record is Alice Cooper Goes to Hell, and it's more Bacharachy. I mean, there's more, because he keeps having hits with ballads. Only Women Bleed is on Welcome to My Nightmare, and it becomes a big hit for him. Yeah, we should listen to that. Yeah. Man got his woman to take his seat. He got the power, oh, she got the need. Spends her life through But he's an upper man Feeds him dinner Oh, anything she can She cries alone at night too often He smokes and drinks and don't come home at all Only women bleed Only women bleed only women believe Conceptually, it works when Tina Turner is is covering it, or Etta James, as as they have. Um, and it's more confusing when Alice sings it, you know, from the, the male perspective. <laughs> <laughs> but I prefer his vocals on the song. Like, I, I just love the way it sounds. Yeah, I mean, it's a little uncomfortable, I mean, to be honest <laughs> with you. Even saying the title is a little, I don't know how, if I should be saying it or not. Yeah. But I know that Alice Cooper Goes to Hell is the next one, which sounds like it's going to be heavier, but in fact has some disco elements. It's got more of these, you know. You gotta dance. You gotta dance. I'm the coolest. Which I'm is the like coolest. This, it's like a lounge cat kind of thing you know that I'm the coolest that's ever come around you know just things get hotter whenever I'm in town I mean I gotta be the coolest who else could it be everybody knows who's really cool me I love go to hell the song because I he puts he puts the character on trial. We've gone this far with the character of Alice Cooper. He's killed him, you know, hundreds of times, maybe thousands of times on stage. And finally, Alice has been sent to hell. Criminal acts and violence on the 
that I listen to it, I'm thinking like, wow, Roger Waters must have been <laughs> listening to this like directly before he wrote The Wall because it's it's great. Yeah. And um, it's funny. We just heard you'd feed a diabetic a candy cane. Yep. Who writes lyrics like that? Yeah. Um, and didn't we meet? By the way, I think is is a ballad that does well as, again, and I, I like that. I think it's a I good like it's song. a good song. So I, I, I give high marks to. I also like the cover. It's a strange cover. He's he looks like the Wicked Witch of the West. Yeah. Um, with a you know blazing uh, orange uh, setting behind him, and then uh, uh, Welcome to My Nightmare is is um, him in top you know top hat and and tails before. He continues to refine his look and, and always keep it interesting. Like later on, he'll put on sure. military stuff. I think at this point, you know, it, it they. Had, the original band was still sort of hanging out, waiting to be reassembled. And at, at, at like 1976, after The Greatest Hits has come out and Goes to Hell comes out, they realized that Alice is not coming back. Right. And so they formed their own band called Billion Dollar Babies, I think. Yeah, just like the Spiders from Mars uh, <laughs> tour In after fact, they get ditched by uh, Ziggy. What's strange a little bit about going. the original band is that you don't really hear much from them. Like as like Michael no, Bruce. No, that by the way, that album Billion Dollar Babies is horrible. Well, uh, Michael Bruce does one record called In My Own Way, where the other guys play on it. There's some decent songs on it, but yeah, it just kind of sounds like soft rock and without the the you know the high concept silliness and bit of right. a you know sinister thing. They they lose the plot a little bit, although they they're still hooks. But so Alice is becoming more and more of an alcoholic. He they then they record Lace and Whiskey, which is another Bob Ezrin record, and brings in a new persona. Actually, you can call me Inspector Marisa Scago. But that's Maurice Snail, isn't it? Yes. Which is, I think it's him sort of taking off on Inspector Clouseau. Yeah. From Pink Panther. Yeah, he's a detective. He's a private investigator. And there's a bunch of um. There's some fun stuff on this no album. More love I mean, convenience is good. Obviously, at the time. You know, all the, the like hardcore rock fans of Alice Cooper are saying, What the fuck is this? You have jumped the shark, my friend. You, uh, you and shark. me is basically a, a soft rock hit. And, and Sinatra covers it. And at, right. at the point when he covers it, that's when his parents are like, Okay, son, you've, you've made, made it. it. Squeeze you till the passion starts to rise I want to take you to heaven That would make my day complete But you and me ain't no movie star What we are is what we are We share a bed, loving and TV That's enough for a working man But what I am is what I am And I'll tell you, babe Well, that's enough for me but I mean, I, the song you had you had included on a mix there that I had never heard was a song called "My God," which is the last song on here. And he he's always got a lot of religious imagery in his songs. And the, the, um, but it's usually sort of like it's not satanic, but it's always sort of good and evil and yeah. kind of playing with that stuff. And "My God" has it starts with an organ. It is not when I when I when it came on, I was like, "Who is this? This is Lex put on a different different." 
He sings it straight. Yeah. It's a great song. It's also really well written. If I should find myself in black tonight, and fear is stabbing me all over, a tiny breath crash the dark light, and I can't stand behind my walls. Inside a still small voice, it calls, it calls. Then like the thunderbolt, it falls and falls. My God. I love that song, but. This record alienated people. I mean, at this point, yeah. people are like, who, it, he's, he's on the downward slide, um, and he's also not in, the, not in a good way. So what does he do? Uh, he gets sent to a mental institution. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, uh, genuinely. Uh, Ezrin, Shep, and his wife, Cheryl, uh, sign him in uh, to, at White Plains, New York. He's 29, Mm. Which is like what? I, I, that that really socks it to you. That he doesn't he doesn't look twenty nine at that point. He looks like he's like pushing forty. Yeah, he's um, living hard. And uh, you know he he blames Alice the villain for sort of like taking over his brain and his life. I'm the murderer, and I will be murdered. <laughs> You're going to murder yourself. Uh... That very possibly that could happen. <laughs> I'd just like to thank you for the interview. And, uh, <laughs> and he basically says that Alice, the character, was too much. He he felt like he had to carry around Alice with him off stage, yeah. and um, and booze was the only way to to negotiate that. So and his, his gang, his best friends, have, have gone right. The, the acrimony there. Yeah, and also, you know, lots of people that he's been hanging out with, not in the band necessarily, have died. You know, people are falling away. You put some mascara on your eyes. Yeah, you know, I read... A minute ago, are you now Vince or Alice? I'm about in the middle right now. I'm not really (laughs) drunk enough to be Alice. (laughs) (laughs) Sort of a midway Alice. Mm -hmm. I I can't be Alice all the time because he's a little bit too dangerous. (laughs) said this in this interview that I was listening to with uh, Pamela DeBar that like none of them really thought about life after 30 right they're they're living in the moment and not considering what's what's next really but what's next is a padded self for him and he he really uh I think confronts his his one demon uh and uh on the flip side, he comes out uh, with some ideas. <laughs> well, he's got. He also comes out. He decides to hook up with Bernie Taupin, uh, yeah. from you know to write lyrics with him. Elton John's great, uh, and in fact, he borrows a bunch of Elton John's backing band, like Davy Johnson. I think Nigel. We also get some Toto in there, baby. And I was about to say, it <laughs> can't be a well of sound episode without Toto. So you have Steve Lukather and Steve Porcaro both playing on this record. Yeah, and, and Rick rec- Nielsen. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, just one. Uh, one hey, you know what we forgot to mention? No. On Killer, Under My Wheels, Incredible. One of those guitar solos is actually Rick Derringer. I know. Of Rock and Roll Hoochie Coo. And I didn't know this about Rick Derringer, but he goes on to produce all of Weird Al's early stuff. Is and that he right? he plays the Eddie Van Halen solo on Eat It. Don't you call me Pudgy Portly or Stout to tell me once again who's sad. Really? <laughs> well, you know, it's not, uh, we get into it a little bit more, but as this goes on, I can't help but think that Alice paved the way for, for Weird Al. There is a, especially in the 80s, like there is more and more comedy 
baked into his songs that allows for an audience to sort of be able to like mm. laugh and enjoy the music at the same time. I think there's so much in from the inside. You know, when I was like researching Alice Cooper years ago, or just sort of researching something, I remember seeing from the inside listed among these like harrowing mental health records. Uh huh. And it is not what you think of as an Alice Cooper record. When you listen to it, it is more sounds more like an Elton John record with some more crazy imagery. Yeah. The song from the inside, by the way, is fantastic. I think I, I like the Quiet Room. Uh, quiet Room. I like that for Veronica. Huge- for Veronica my, my kids out of here. The song we're all crazy now at the very end like we're all crazy yeah. my kids have been chanting that ever since I played it <laughs> and uh, but you gotta like there's something oh god I, I, I can't make a grandiose statement about this except for like uh, it fascinates me that this theme of mental health and um, madness and dealing with a, a, a split personality shows up in Ballad of Dwight Fry and actually manifests itself in his real life to the point that he does a concept record about being locked up. And it got to the point where, when I got to the point where, you know, I was developed into Alice. I needed Alice. I really did need to be Alice. You probably need to be another personality. You know, it's good for you because then you don't have nervous breakdown. This theme has has actually become real yeah. in his life, and I don't think that Which he was necessarily yeah. headed that way had it not been for uh, this lifestyle and this career path. You know, he he doesn't seem necessarily predisposed. No, he's a, he's actually like you listen to. He's very smart, and you listen to him speak, and he's very. Uh, cogent and yeah. um and and just with it and so i think this is he views this as the darkest time of his life but and he he gets sober he gets out and he does this record they tore it people kind of hate it alice cooper has invested almost a million dollars in his latest show madhouse rock a parody of his experiences drying out in a new york sanitarium i lost like 20 pounds when i stopped drinking and i'm back down to uh back down to fighting weight actually running weight. i was uh, i was like a mile or two mile when i was in school and so I feel great on stage, you know, it's like, this show is easily the hardest show we've ever done. I mean, it's twice what Nightmare was. And in this thing, I feel if you beat something, you're allowed to make fun of it. The son of a preacher, he says he himself remains an entertainer, not a preacher against the evils of alcohol. But he sounds like a man who's gotten a new lease on life. But I thought that the alcohol was a necessary formula for Alice. When I, before I'd go on, I would have to have exactly the right kind of alcohol. You know, VO, it'd have to be VO and everything like that. And then when I when I finally made it my enemy, because it was killing me, I was throwing up blood, all in, I wouldn't tell anybody, you know? And when I made it my enemy, then I had something to fight for, you know? They've got this place where they've been keeping me, where I can't hurt myself, I can't get my wrist to bleed, just don't know why. Suicide appears to me. And 
there's also Nurse Rosetta, which is exactly what you think it's going to be. Just like and abs- Millie and Billy about um, two killers uh, <laughs> on the run. There's a lot of fun stuff. He he loves this record, and I actually think it's great. But he's still he's he goes from this to being in an even worse. It was adapted, by the way, into a comic book. This this record, Marvel premiere number fifty. Really. And I really like the record. Again, it's it's in one-off a little bit. Given the left turn he takes in 1980, this is the beginning. In 1980, he enters the 80s not at a, at a at a sort of commercial low point, but also a mental health. He starts drinking again, and like he says that there are four records that he doesn't. He has no memory of the recording or touring or writing. And it starts with Flush the Fashion, which he works with Roy Thomas Baker, who is the producer for Queen, and he's worked with, you know, the Cars. Yeah, and you can hear it. You yeah. know, he's he's a he's a. It's he's a, a new sound for Alice. It's also like the the sound of the the times, and uh, it's not quite punk rock though yet. It's more new wave. It's this new record, new wave for sure. The next one becomes punky, punky. I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I think it suits him. Like for me, these albums, the the, the cocaine is also a, a factor here. Um, <laughs> And they play like some of the greatest cocaine records <laughs> of all time. For me, I think they sound fantastic. I'm going to play Clones, We're All, which everyone thinks is a lost car song. I'm a clone. I know that I'm fine. I'm running more of the way. I'm Chip Doctor. He's on the line. We take incubation another day. I'm all alone, so are we all. It's an awesome song, and it's a lot an awesome of the song. There's a song in there called "Pain." Oh, it's, can we play "Pain"? Yeah, it's I such a pain. short record, by the way. It's like sympathy for the devil, uh, except for it's about pain. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's it's yeah. I mean, a, a concept song just about pain, and it's just him listing a number of things that hurt, <laughs> that, that hurt. And he's like, "Guess what? I'm pain." <laughs> he does a cover of a Bonnie Well Music Machine uh, song called "Talk Talk." It's a great song. Oh, that's Bonnie Well Music. Yeah. See, I mean, he's um. They, they people consider these albums experimental. The next one is um, Special Forces. I. Love special forces. Special forces is him doing. I think is more punk rock. He he takes on this military persona. He's also reading Soldier of Fortune a lot. Oh yeah, which I like. It's really into Soldier of Fortune <laughs> and cocaine. He's probably doing cocaine off the pages of Soldier. Apparently, of he's Fortune. also smoking crack. In fact, oh, it's like, that, that's what I've read. Well, you can tell. Have you? Did you see that um, uh, uh, Tom Snyder interview? No. Once again, a Tom Snyder interview <laughs> factors in. You know, that was the end of Kiss. Yeah. Uh, the, the original lineup. Uh, he shows up on Tom Snyder. He actually is, I mean, he's clearly 
on amphetamines uh, because he's he's talking quickly, but you know he's sharp. Uh, but he looks like Betty Davis at the end of her life. Oh my goodness! He looks insane. Like he's so gaunt. He looks skeletal, and he's also his new look is this sort of like samurai bun on the top of his head, mm. and like uh, uh, smeared mascara and l- crooked lipstick. I mean, he is a sight to behold at this point. So on uh, on the new one, um, Special Forces, it's literally the hardest album I've ever made as far as, as hard rock. The first side is a muncher, a heart pacer, you know, it's, it's, it's really, it's five songs of, no, just relentless, totally. And I'm really proud of it, I, I really like it, you know. It just keeps, you figure it's got to give you a rest somewhere and it doesn't. And also he's, he's starting to get into movies. Well, for the first time there's, uh, there's Sextet with Mae West, which is this gigantic uh, flop. Lady Barrington, Mumbai Eye. Mm. Mm. Likewise, I'm sure. Marlo. Oh, hello, Alice. Marlo. Marlo, you did it. You're going to be Woman of the Year. They just signed the peace pack. You just saved the world. There's a lot of things where he just shows up. He's in Roadie, which actually centers around the character of Alice Cooper. Meatloaf plays a roadie who chases a girl who's obsessed with Alice Cooper, and Alice Cooper shows up. I actually recommend this movie. It's it's a fun movie to watch. It's okay. an Alan Rudolph-directed uh, movie. You, Cooper? Yeah. All right, I brought her to you. Lowell Bully Base, your billion-dollar baby. You gonna take her to dinner like you said, and you gonna take her on top of that big, tall building and kiss her in front of God and everybody, just like you promised, right? Yeah, I always keep my promises. I'll see y'all in Texas. I just want to say something about Special Forces. Yeah, please. I love there's that. A, there's a song that they decided to omit. It was called Look Over Look at You Over There Ripping the Sawdust from My Teddy Bear. So I mean if that's not a cocaine title, I don't know what is. <laughs> they cover seven and seven is the love song, and I think it's an awesome cover. Some of this, just by nature of the people he had surrounding him, is really interesting. Um, But then you get to 1982, which is another record that um, he doesn't remember making. And he makes an album called Zipper Catches Skin. <laughs> and But the, the cover is not... Uh, I guess there's a picture of him on the back looking like he's in pain from the, from the title. But it's, it's just a... It's like all these just typed out words on the front. And it's yeah. very... It looks very avant-garde. Yeah. Um, and it's, again, it's leaner. It's more... It's harder. It's a little bit more, you know, punky. Um, and I think that, I mean, Dick Wagner, who left halfway through the recording sessions, described Zipper Catch a Skin as off to the races, speedy album, and a quote, drug induced night. 
nightmare. <laughs> also, this is the point that, you know, you said that he loves TV. He has a TV in every room. He's almost like at Elvis level. Like, 29 TVs. In he's roaming house. room to room and just like all sped up and watching TV constantly. Like he's consuming like on a, on a crazy level. And he's got these... He's, again, he's reading Soldier of Fortune. He goes on tears about how great America is. This um, is 1982. Yeah. What yeah. can you possibly watch on 22? There aren't that many channels. Well, we have, you know, you have cable now. You can watch things from Toledo, you know, if you want to. You can watch cooking shows from Akron. And, and I just really like, I like the fact that it's all moving. And it's, and it's at the same time, all those people are stars. They go home and, you know, yeah, I have my own cooking show. You know, into their family. Right. That's, you know, but the, the thing is, like, you can catch things out of context. School's Out, the song School's Out was our biggest hit. You know, that came out of a Bowery Boys movie. You, you know, you're watching and sort of listening, and, and Sa- uh, Muggsy said to Satch, hey, School's Out, hits him with his hat. And what he meant was Wise Up in that you know, context. And, and that struck me. I went, oh, that's what a great way to say that. Now, I wasn't listening to the rest of the movie, but I caught that. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of things you just catch out of context. And I think it's a great pop art, you know, thing. Lest we take him. At all seriously, I mean, and he's a wonderful guy. I don't want to put yeah. that. I, I really love listening. No, no, to no. Song. But he's got a song on here called um, uh, "I'm Alive." And then in parentheses, that was the day my dead pet returned to save my life. And this is how it sounds. It's an, I love the song. I was just kicking down the street, and the sun was in my eyes, so I couldn't see the truck that was sixty times my size, and just seconds off from splattering me. Let me tell you, I was so scared I couldn't move, like my boots were full of glue. And I felt a little tugging, and I thought a good old blue. And he pulled me from that catastrophe. That was the day my dead pet returned to save my life. I'm alive! He's alive! I'm alive! It, it just goes on from there. There's a song in there. <laughs> no Baloney Homo Sapiens for Steve and E.T. Uh, Zorro's Ascent. Uh... Uh, tag your it. Tag your it is about a serial killer uh, playing tag with uh, his victims. Um, yeah, some great stuff. And then we get to Dada in '83. Yeah, Dada is another one he doesn't remember writing at all. Um, and also deals with madness. Say hello to Alice Cooper, Vince. Alice, what's up, buddy? Vince, oh, good. I, I was hoping you'd call. Yeah, I thought you were. I didn't wait for you, weren't you? <laughs> we all have been waiting for you, Vince. What's your question? I've worshipped you for years. I'm only 20, but since I was a kid, my uncle got me into you, bud. They, Listen, he, your uncle had good taste. Uh, yes, he does. <laughs> I always wanted to know what inspired you to write Formerly Warmer off of Dada. Oh, Formerly Warmer. Well, you know, you're, you're into some strange territory there. Formerly Warmer was... Uh, was a character that we wrote for that. The Dada album, I can barely remember. It was at the last point of my alcoholism. And I was up in Toronto writing, and this whole album was so strange. I'm afraid to listen to it now. Really? The Dada album is very weird. It's one of those albums that really depicted a very strange black time in my life. Mm-hmm. But formerly Warmer was a great character. He was, uh, he lived up in the attic, and he kind of, uh, I don't know what he lived on, but... Uh, they fed him every day. Do you do material from that album or no? Or is it not too really. hard to do? Yeah, sometimes it really is. You, you listen to certain albums, like I said, really depicted of not good times in your life. Right. But uh, for some reason, the therapy of doing an album when you're feeling horrible is good. Yeah. Because you go back and I go back and listen to it now and I go, wow, what was I thinking of? Right. You know. There's a song on there called, I remember it texting with you and it, I've heard this, the song Pass the Gun Around has a... Um, Pass the Gun Around. 
It's got an, uh, just a magnificent solo from Dick Wagner, who's still sticking with him and, and writing a lot of these songs. Um, I haven't. I don't. I didn't dig deeply into Dada. I have to play "I Love America." Do you know "I Love America"? Oh my gosh, play it! Um, the, again, this is what really makes the lines cross with Weird Al for me. I love my jeans and I love my hair. I love a real tight skirt and a real nice pair. And on the Fourth of July, I love the rockets and red glare. I watch the A Team every Tuesday night. I graduated, but ain't too bright. I love Detroit because I was born to fight. I don't think I listened to that one that closely. I wow. Mean, you know, it's what Bruce was trying to do with Born in the USA. It's just Alice hits it a little harder. Yeah. It, that's that's actually, I mean, pretty interesting. At this point, he, by the way, is so bottomed out that he's his wife at the time who forces, and he's still married to her. Yeah. Um, there's ultimatums all the way around. Like, he's got to get clean. And so... Yeah, he's on the verge of divorce. Um, he gets, he goes back. Oh, Warner dumps him. Uh, he goes back into rehab, um, and when he gets out, th- he's he's clean. And actually, he this is this is the golf streak. He plays golf for about three years. He's trying to get some stuff going. He's hanging out with Joe Perry, who's also fresh out of rehab, mm-hmm. and they're noodling around. They're seeing ghosts. We were going to write a song for, and we both just got out of rehab. I know, weird, isn't it? Rock and roll guys. Imagine. It's hard to believe. And we we both just got out. We went to this house. If you were going to look for a location for a horror movie, it would be this house. So all day, we got in. I opened up my suitcase, go in the bathroom, come back out, and the suitcase is closed. Ah, okay, well, I just got out of rehab. (laughs) And, you know, and then I go in the bathroom and the water's on. And I go, that's weird. I don't remember returning that water. All day this happened. You know, so that night at dinner, we're sitting there and everybody's going, I put my guitar pick down over here and it ended up over there and all day. And while we're talking, the basement is under us. And it, it's not just a little, it sounds like somebody's moving furniture in the basement, you know, and we're both sitting there like, you know, it's like an Abbott and Costello movie. You know. <laughs> Finally, somebody says, um, and it's not like the movies where you go, Let me, let's get a flashlight and go down and see what it is. Yeah. No, we were out the door. You know? And I asked Shep, I said, Shep, I said, your house in Copeg. He goes, oh, yeah. He said, the guy wrote the uh, Amityville Horror there. Oh. And I went, ah. Oh. oh, no. And you were going to tell me when? No, I haven't seen Monster Dog, the film that he stars in around this time. Have you seen, it's a horror movie? It's on Amazon, and I was going to watch it until I saw that um, his, all of his vocals are dubbed. Oh. oh and really? I was like, that doesn't sound that fun. But well, I, I think it's kind of, it does sound pretty fun. It's about a werewolf. Shoot me. Do it before it's too late. Come on. Shoot me. Come on! 
On Wednesday, the man who shocked the 70s, Alice Cooper, told MTV News he's making a comeback and that his new album will revive his killer instinct. We're doing a, a new album now. We're inventing something called Splatter Rock. One of the things, like, so when he finally reemerges in 1986, he's, first of all, he's got Kip Winger. Yeah, on base. Who becomes Winger, uh, the big, you know, hair metal band. Kane Roberts is his collaborator during this time. But he was, he not only wrote a song called He's Back, The Man Behind the Mask for the Friday the 13th uh, part. 28. (laughs) Part 6. And they're working on part 7 right now. Oh, God. So Jason will be back. My old pal. Are you are you a fan of, uh, of uh, the Friday the 13th movie? I watch so many splatter movies. I watch like two or three a day. Before breakfast, I watch like one before breakfast. Really? And, uh, what was it one I watched this morning? I watched The Shriek of the Mutilated this morning. <laughs> You're with your baby in your park alone. By the way, went on to become a number one hit in Sweden. So, uh, he also uh, "Teenage Frankenstein" is sort of an, a great song from there. But he the t- the track "The Great American Success Story" was apparently intended as a theme song to Rodney Danger's film Dangerfield's film "Back to School," but was not actually used. Hey, folks, it's on me, Shakespeare for everyone. Okay. And then '87, he's in John Carpenter's *Prince of Darkness*. Yes. He writes a song called *Prince of Darkness*. Oh, really? He stuck me in the movie, and then he expanded the part. Uh, you know, oh, so I, I actually, I actually do uh, wipe a few people out in the movie. How That's many good. people do you kill in this one? Oh, I can't. I think as it is right now, just one. Because I think in the film *Monster Dog*, he killed about seven or eight, wasn't it? Seven or eight, yeah, yeah. Which is not bad, guy. No, but this is a real spectacular <laughs> one, though. This is a. This has got a lot of, this is a very tasteful kind of... Right. <laughs> well, you mentioned the film is called Prince of Darkness. I imagine in some parts of America, people probably think you are the Prince of Darkness. And, you know, this is also seeping into, uh, you know, our psychic space, I think, as kids. He's on uh, WrestleMania three, mm-hmm. uh, as uh, with Jake the Snake, of course, at the Pontiac Silverdome. Two more weeks till WrestleMania three. Before anything this much fun, I go like that. My stomach gets like that. <laughs> Knotted up. Well, you know, we know how we feel, but can you imagine how those two grease balls are feeling? I mean, looking at us, thinking about Damien, you know this is not the tunnel of love. And Jimmy Hart, you claim to be huh, an artist, a singer. Keep on dancing, Jimmy Hart. You know what I mean. Uh, a one-hit wonder. Honky-tonk, you're going to be mine. He really actually, if you think back on the 70s and all the stage stuff, um, he is paving the way for 80s horror. He's also paving the way for 80s metal. I think that there's a a great marriage between rock and roll and horror. At least in my mind there is. In my sort of realm of rock and roll, I've always found that uh, horror works the best for me. I can't see myself ever being a hero. In 87... or thereabout, he plays Freddy Krueger's dad in... Um, oh, he does? Yeah, Because I know he gets Robert Englund to make a guest five. appearance on a, that song on um, 
on Raise Your Fist and Yell. They needed somebody to uh, to play a stepfather that was a believable, horrible stepfather, abusive. I don't know why they chose me. I can't imagine. Gee, I don't know why. But uh, it was it was really fun to do. I mean, you know, since I watched those movies, it was very simple to do. Uh, I'm a very horrible. I'm a very horrible guy. In it. He's entrenched in the horror world, and of course, you know, and and Rob Zombie, Marilyn Manson, Corn, Slipknot, all these people are like drawing on the Alice Cooper sort of formula. Eventually, for me, the the most the the best part of metal is the energy and the sound. Uh, the sound of the guitars, sound of the drums, all working together. Um, I think where where metal misses is that too many bands try to sound the same. Everybody's trying to sound like Ronnie Dio. Great, yeah, great operatic kind of thing. Yeah. It's great for Ronnie Dio, but I mean, just too many bands try to copy that. So you have a lot of bands sounding the same. I think we took the best part of that kind of sound and. Uh, and took that voice out and put Alice's voice in, in with my kind of lyrics. Yet there's something to me that's a little... It's different. That's the wrong word. It, some of this is it's highly produced, good sort of glam metal or like hair metal that he's sort of trying to wade his way back into because his image fits so much. But if you listen to his classic period, it doesn't actually sound like that. But, it, you know, it reaches its... its um, you know, and, and by the way, the, the cover to Raise Your Fist and Yell really does look like Evil Dead. I mean, it's 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 yeah. the horror thing. It's it's gone from horror to like splatter. But right. by 1989, he teams up with Desmond Child, who's worked with Bon Jovi, and they have this and Aerosmith. And I mean, this massive hit called Poison. Your cruel your blood like ice. One look could kill. That was another one. I remember when that song came out. I, I, the the Aerosmith pump and Permanent Vacation were like regulars in my tape player, and those are both Desmond Child sort of driven. Yeah, uh, I mean, if you listen to um, that record, Trash, yeah, Bed of Nails great song. sounds like a Bon Jovi song. I was yeah. like, am I listening to Bon Jovi? I'm not, because Bon Jovi writes the very next song on the record with Alice called he- Hell is Living Without You. But, it's I also mean, a good song. <gasps> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I drop you hard on a bed of nails or something like that, yeah. and it's it's a it's it's top drawer, you know, glam metal. And this is when totally, um, you know, uh, when he's he's kind of come back from the dead, basically. You know, the nice thing about being in LA is that it's a fraternity. There's a real rock fraternity here, and everybody knows everybody here. So uh, if you want to call somebody up, you know, and say, hey, why don't you sing on the album, or why don't you come over here? There's a bass part here. It's perfect for you. That's pretty much what we did. I, I called up Nikki Six to play some bass. I, I actually did some writing with Nikki and Mick, and Mick came in to play some guitar on the album, and Satriani and Steve Vai played on the album. Ozzy came over, Slash came over and played, and, and then you know, but it's 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 uh, it's one of those things where like uh, Axel called me up at midnight, you know, and I went over and sang on their new album. And in 1991 is when he's going to be do Feed My Frankenstein and get into Wayne's World. But then he becomes he's at that point, he's sort of 
He's becomes more of like a nostalgia act. Though he continues to do interesting things. I mean, I, the other way that I heard about Alice Cooper when I was a kid yeah. was through The Last Temptation, like a uh, comic book that he did with Neil Gaiman. Right. That was also linked into a... Um, a uh, you know a, a, a record. We wrote the story first. Neil Gaiman and I got with Neil, you know, and I said, "Let's write the story first. No music, just the story." Alice Cooper's a fictional character. That's wonderful. Yes, yes, I'd love to do that. We sat in a hotel room and we talked about bad Italian horror films. We talked about what we'd want to do with a story. We talked about what classic Alice meant, and we talked about the. The fictional character of Alice Cooper. He looks like an out-of-work Victorian gravedigger. There's all these icons of horror that we've got. We've got the Wolfman, we've got Frankenstein's monster, we've got Dracula. These days we've got Jason and Freddy. And Alice is one of them. And he eventually does Welcome to My Nightmare 2, which has a bunch of the original band on it. I'm sure there's tons to like listen to and enjoy on all those records. Um, yeah, his other yeah golf is because his other passion and he's right. He wa- now he walks the line between like uh, you know super straight laced uh, celebrities and and folks on a golf course and yeah. and he gets to tell these rock and roll stories and and he sort of walks in two worlds basically. I'm, I'm a model citizen. Yeah, and you think he's kind of an American institution at this point in the sense that he's got such. He was just there when so much stuff happened. You know, during that phase, that debaucherous phase in the early 70s to mid-70s, what was going on in Hollywood and what was going on in New York, Alice Cooper's there for all of it. Yeah, there, there's a neat quote from Bob Ezrin about the, not the man, but the, the Alice Cooper persona, mm-hmm. which um, is actually a really interesting American character. Uh this Alice Cooper character. And he says, he is the psycho killer in all of us. He's the ax murderer. He's the spoiled child. He's the abuser. He's the abused. He's the perpetrator. He's the victim. He's the gunslinger. And he's the guy lying dead in the middle of the street. Oh my gosh. Speaking of psycho killer, do you know that Billion Dollar Babies inspired David Byrne to write psycho killer? That's what he says. What? The, the talking heads. Again, Alice Cooper's at the center of this stuff. He really is. And, uh, and I, doesn't, honestly, these days, doesn't get the credit. Partly because he's seen as like a guy who's on Hollywood Squares. And by the way, yeah. I love his Muppet Show appearance. I think it's the Muppets are like his favorite. And, um, and yeah. I know that the original guys yes. in the band, when it, they were elect, they were put into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and like the original band was inducted, not the man, but Alice, the Cooper, the band. There's some lingering bad feeling about sure. it <laughs> because they really thought of Alice Cooper as a band and um, it was a different beast. And it's, it's, uh, I have to think of the same. I mean, so in fact, when we were doing our top fives, I did our top, my top five of the Alice Cooper band and then my top five oh, of his sort of. That helps me. So um, I'll give you my, how about I give you top five of the Alice Cooper band? Great. You ready for that? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Ballad of Dwight Fry. Great. I think it's fantastic. It works on every level. Uh, the the drama, the actual hook, the performance, the music, it's it's fantastic. The song Long Way to Go, which is a kind of a Michael Great Bruce song. like rough, straight ahead rock and roll song. The bass, I mean the whole their musicianship at that point is is really firing and I love that song. Um I got to put No More Mr. Nice Guy on there. Oh, which is um, I I I try to shy away from the big hits, but that one's on there. Then off of uh, Billion Dollar Babies, I'm gonna put Hello Hooray. I think that they completely make it their own. That's one of my favorite songs, and especially the live version. It is so 
cool. Mm-hmm. And then um, I wanted to put something from Muscle of Love, and so I chose Hard Hearted Alice for the like the last two minutes of it. I think are brilliant. Totally. So that's my that's my Alice Cooper band. Okay. Top five. Okay. Do you want to? I'll do mine. Okay. Because I, I think I can do the same thing. Um, I love Desperado. Ooh, I love that. That's sort of the rare. The what Bob Ezrin just said. The gunslinger story. Mm-hmm. Um, also, he sort of says it's about Jim Morrison, but uh, he's probably, it depends on when he talks about it. But uh, okay, Desperado, Looney Tune, I mentioned that one before. I love that song. That was a real discovery for me. Uh, I, I, I have the same feelings you do about Welcome to My Nightmare, and yet uh, I really found myself enjoying a lot of the songs on there. I like Department of Youth and... and um, uh, but that's not, that's, we're not talking Alice Cooper Band at that point. Oh yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. Um. Well, shoot. Then I'm screwed. <laughs> well, why don't you go on to the rest? Okay. Of- so I said Desperado, Looney Tunes, Devil's Food. So I've only got three from the from the band. There. Had I done that, maybe I, I would have. But you you had some great choices. Uh, let's say I'll, I'll pick from the middle period here. I like Only Women Bleed, uh, and I like Go to Hell. Um. So I'll pass it back to you. Okay. Well, mine from the like the, the that second. 13 years yep. is uh, Go to Hell as well. The song From the Inside. Yes. Oh, from the Inside. Uh, the song My God. Yep. Uh, the song um, Clones We're All. Yep. Which he didn't write, but it's, it's just an awesome song. Yeah. And then the song I'm Alive, that was the day of my dead pet returned to save my life. I just think it's um, a singular achievement. I think I, I also think... love parenthetical titles, and that's one of the great ones of all time. <laughs> it really is. Um, Okay, from that era, I'll go with, uh, I like The Quiet Room a lot. I would pick Clones and Pain. Um, Who Do You Think We Are uh, it has become one of my favorite uh, Alice songs. Um, and uh, I, I really like I, I Love America, which I just played, <laughs> which is totally silly. But I, I do have a song that we can send it out on because I know that we won't be able to put it on uh, our Spotify playlist okay. because um, it's just not available. I don't I don't know how to get it other than on YouTube, and I know that we can patch it in here. Um, it's called Identity Crises. Do you know it? No. Um, it is from Monster Dog. It oh! Is, it is what his character... So he plays a rock... He basically plays himself... Uh, he plays a rocker and he's he records two music videos in that movie um and one of them is identity crises and when i when i saw watched the trailer for monster dog i was like what is this song i don't know it and it's it's great it doesn't sound like any other alice cooper but it does it actually sounds more like what he's been doing recently which are these detroit stories these covers mm. of of detroit era stuff um but with like kind of a punk flair because it's like 86 oh cool yeah cool so i'll play that all right well great this is fun rock and roll rock and roll Like Jack the Ripper Cause I got an image 
If there's any devil worship, I'm sure it's in the Congress rather than rock and roll. <laughs> Very well put.